today, last day. They all came together? Oh, I didn't do, okay, anyway. So, we have a test on, no, not a test, we have the test, right, on Monday in this room. Hopefully the snowstorm that's coming isn't going to be so bad. Right, they're trying to hype it up already. If it does get changed, if we do have to cancel, I don't know, who knows when it's going to take place. But anyway, again, it's the last third of the course, everything from the second test until today. It's 25 questions, it's no bigger, it's no smaller. It's just like everything we've been doing on all the tests beforehand. Okay? Today the other thing is we also have to do evaluations. I forgot all about evaluations. So we'll do evaluations today. So, last thing we're going to talk about is the immune system and the gut. We talked a little bit about gut when we talked about uh, early on when we talked about lymphoid tissue, we talked about, right, the malt mucosal associated lymphoid tissue, we talked about the gallt, the gut associated lymphoid tissue, right, that's what we're going to talk about today. Most important thing that we need to talk about today is we have a lot of visitors in our body. Okay? If you look at all the cells and all the genes in our body, we're only less than 10% human. Because at any one point in time, we have travelers with us. We have bacterial cells, hundreds of trillions of bacterial cells. We also have viruses associated with us, not only in our gut, but in our skin, in our mouth, all over the place. And the viruses are thought to be quadrillion, right? Different viruses, uh, virus particles themselves, 10 to the 15th. And they outnumber our, all of our somatic and our germ cells by at least tenfold. So human intestinal microbiota, or the bacteria that live in our gut, there are about 500 to 1,000 different species that are known. And all together, we're carrying about three pounds worth of bacteria with us. Well, little tiny bacteria, but they end up to about three pounds or so. So, the number of genes in the human microbiome may exceed the number of human genes by at least a hundredfold. So, human metabolic features are the combination of everything human and everything microbial. The microbiota, or the microbiota, potatoes, potatoes are basically all the microorganisms that live inside and on humans. And when we're talking about the microbiome, right, we're talking about the genomes of all of these micro uh, symbionts themselves. So there have been sequencing studies. So we're looking at all the sort of pathogens and basically bacteria that are living in our intestines, in our mouth. So these are all phylogenetic trees just showing how many different species there are on our skin and our airwaves. And if we look over in here, if we look in our gut, we look in our mouth, these are the number of different species of bacteria that are associated with us, and these are the number of genes from these bacteria that are associated with us. Right? So all these things, we're all interacting between all of our little friends that we carry along and everything else. So we remember about symbiosis. It's a term typically used for this chronic association of members of more than one genetic lineages. 
doesn't have to have any sort of pathogenesis involved with it, right? Although a lot of the ones that we're talking about in human biology are going to be pathogens, but a lot of them are our friends, right? Who's on uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, right? It's always trying to sell us more friends that we can ingest. What's the name of the, of the bacteria in that yogurt, right? Uh, something, right? Something, right? So we're always trying to increase the number of friendly bacteria that we have. And there seems to be some sort of health benefit to that, and we can talk about it in a minute. So these symbionts are going to offer some sort of mutual benefit, right? Some of them can be easy or difficult to observe. Some things we have no idea about the connection, or we're in the middle of, of investigating the connection right now. So these can be anywhere, anything from exchange of nutrients or other products to some sort of protection, transportation, structural integrity. Maybe we give the bacteria some sort of structural integrity as a, as a walking incubator that we're going to be able to, to be involved with. So if we think about why this is probably taking place, bacteria are the original colonizer. Well, I don't want to say that, because right? that, would, that would make it sound like there might have been no sort of primitive organisms even before bacteria. But as far as we know, right? bacteria have been here for about 4 billion years or so. Every sort of area, every niche, every place we can look, we can find all sorts of different bacteria from the deepest parts of the ocean right, to the hottest hot springs and to, even into solid rock some sort of uh, uh, investigations are coming. And there was even what, there was a, a paper that was published just, what, two weeks ago where investigators in the Arctic were doing some ice cores and they think they've found bacteria that have been living miles and miles underneath in frozen solid ice for the last couple of thousand years. And they're going to thaw them out and take a look at them. So, right, so bacteria can basically live any place. Animals only appeared about a billion years ago. So we all evolved together. All of our eukaryotic ancestors and the, and the prokaryotes all evolved together. So we've been talking about this. These innate immune systems are, are definitely universal among all animal phyla. So infections are a constant selection pressure over evolutionary time. We are responding to the bacteria, and they are responding to us. That's the battle that has been fought for, for eons. Animals also evolved codependence on microbes. Right? Some of which are required for normal development and reproduction. You think about termites. Right? The only way termites can digest wood, the only way they can digest cellulose is by having certain bacteria inside their gut. Right? And those bacteria are secreting products that the, that the termite are using as an energy source. And the bacteria are using the cellulose as an energy source. So we have all sorts of different examples of how this is taking place. And I'm sure in microbiology courses, people talk all the time right, about this innovation through symbiosis. Some people think that things like mitochondria and chloroplasts were free-living organisms at one point of view that we sort of co-opted. Right? So we have mitochondria, we have photosynthesis, nitrogen fixation by plants. 
are some ideas of these different symbiosis that are taking place and we're starting to find all sorts of animal life at deep sea vents. Right? We're looking at sort of bacteria that are living on hydrogen and bacteria that are living on sulfur and how these uh, individual organisms have come together to form new life forms. And so we have all sorts of information connecting symbiosis to take place and if we look at what we know so far about these contributions of the biota to human life and to our nutritional state and, and everything else about being alive and being a human. Right? We know the synthesis of vitamins and harvest of otherwise inaccessible nutrients are carried out by bacteria. Right? Metabolism of xenobiotics and other metabolites, we're going to use them. There's, a, there's uh, evidence to suggest the renewal of gut epithelial cells and cardiac size, that's kind of in quotation marks, are involved and somehow uh, right, directly linked to our friends in our guts. And we also have development and activity of the immune system, right? We have things that we would be interested in talking about. So around 2006 or so, people started looking at this. By 2006, we had the capability in terms of instrumentation to perform these massive sort of DNA synthesis projects, right? metagenomic analysis of every single organism that is living in our gut. Right? The price got low enough where this, even though it was still a, a tremendous undertaking, it still got to the point where technologically we could do it. So around 2006 or so, people started to do this. And they were looking to see if they could do it, and they were looking to see how many different organisms were going to be associated with our gut. So the way they did it, right, Craig Ventner's whole genome shotgun sequencing, they didn't sequence everything, they just sort of sequenced uh, different RNAs, different messenger RNAs, instead of looking at the entire Right, so the genome, although now they've been doing genome studies totally, right, so they studied these mixed microbial communities and they were able to get information. They compared these RNA sequences, right, with PCR of RNA sequence and they analyzed metabolic pathways with known cr clusters of these bacterial groups and they put all this information together to start to make individual sort of uh, comparisons. So what they're going to do is they're going to take right, 16S ribosomal RNA and each individual species has a unique ribosomal RNA. Right? So if you start sequencing ribosomal RNA, and that's what they did, right? they took stool samples from volunteers and they found the different bacteria and different archaea, right? these different other life forms, by sequencing the, this, this uh, ribosomal RNA itself, and they started to construct trees. Now clearly, I can't even read that, right? so I don't expect you all to read that, but in the final analysis, they found all sorts of different, or they were able to find, right? they were able to do all their sequencing, they were able to make the, their, their sequence comparisons, and they were able to make up phylogenetic trees to look to see which bacteria were present in the gut and a couple of different phyla uh, 
er uh, were discovered that made up about 99% of all the bacteria in the gut itself. And again, I'm not going to get into the microbiology. I'm sure there's some very interesting things about, right, about bacteroidetes and firmicoides, right, these different phyla and why they're in the gut, right? We could probably talk about this for uh, four or five different lectures. We're not going to do this because we need to get what's going on inside the immune system. So you put it all together, and when you start comparing individuals, right, most metabolic functions were similar between individuals, between individual humans that they looked at. There was a lot of conservation in the phyla and the different individual species of bacteria that were present in the gut. And these differences, right, in a few functional different categories, and a lot of these differences were probably caused by differences in diet and lifestyle. So we got all this information together to see all these changes that were taking place of these bacteria inside our gut. There have even been studies now to suggest right, that things like obesity right, could be treated by treating, by eliminating certain bacteria and trying to promote the growth of other bacteria. Right? So there's all sorts of information that's coming out from all of these different studies at this point in time right now. So if we look at the bacteria in the mammalian gut, what we can see is that most of us, well not most of us, but all of us, all mammals in general, are going to be infected during birth. And by infection, I don't mean infection as being a bad thing, I mean infection being a good thing. In terms of changes that are going to take place, there's going to be a big change in communities at weaning. And we're going to go mostly from aerobes to mostly anaerobes themselves. So if you look at sort of development itself, right, in pregnancy, we have a sterile right, gut. In utero, we have no bacteria living in our gut. Right? We can thank our trophoblast and we can thank our moms for protecting us from all the bacteria. Right? But at, in utero, there's nothing. After birth, you can start to see, again, these are different species that are going to start to colonize the gut itself, right? And depending upon C-section or vaginal birth, we can get differences in colonization. As we go from breast milk or, or liquid food to solid food, we can start to get changes. And these bacteria will now be involved with carbohydrate utilization. They're going to help us to break down carbohydrates and use them. Right? That's part of the symbiosis right there. And if we get into adulthood, we can see changes in different diseases. We can see changes in obesity as we're taking antibiotics, changes in allergies. Right? This, we'll talk a little bit about a theory that sort of suggests how allergies are so prevalent these days. Right? So we can see different immune functions taking place here as well. Right? So as these bacteria are growing and colonizing our gut, it's changing all the time. As we're taking antibiotics, we're changing our, our gut bacteria. Okay. So the differences between individuals that reinstate themselves following antibiotic treatment, so when you take antibiotics, you're going to kill a lot of the bacteria in your gut. Clearly, we're taking those antibiotics to get rid of any sort of pathogens and to help the immune system, but then the ability of those beneficial bacteria to die during antibiotic treatment are going to be able to take place, so we're going to have to reinstate that. 
We can find common bacterial types across individuals, and we can find some species with specialized communities, so individual populations. There will be difference in gut bacteria between individuals living in Asia and individuals living in Europe, between individuals living in Europe and individuals in the United States. So all this information is coming to the forefront these days, right? We're looking at all these things that are taking place. We're starting to find a lot of information right, about diseases and these sort of bacteria that are taking place. So during antibiotics, as we're taking antibiotics, and also during excess alcohol abuse or use, we can eradicate most bacteria in the gut itself. This can change us. So we're going to go to a sterile gut, and this is going to be followed by some sort of unusual progression back to the original state. So those bacteria are eventually going to recolonize our gut. And these changes that are going to take place right, are going to have consequences in our digestive efficiency, metabolism, fat deposition, obesity, right, as we're going to get recolonized. So if some different bacteria are recolonizing, right, we could have these sort of changes that can take place. Right? Of the bacteria that are in our gut, right, this we're looking not so much on the immune system still, sort of looking at sort of general nutrition and general sort of uh, life functions. But life as we know it couldn't take place if we didn't have our microbial friends. We've been talking a lot about trying to kill our microbial friends, but some of them aren't going to be killed. So we can talk about changes. And these changes that are taking place Right, are called, or is called, dysbiosis. And dysbiosis refers to right, condition with microbial imbalances on or within the body. So we can look at changes, right? If we have different bacteria that aren't on our skin anymore, some of those bacteria might be there to help protect us. Right? And some of those bacteria aren't, might, might, might not be there to protect us, but if any sort of change that is taking place, any sort of imbalance between the bacteria that are in our body are going to be able to have some consequences. It's going to be most predominant in the digestive tract or the skin, but it can also occur on any exposed surface, right? Remember when we talked about innate immunity, we talked about any exposed surface, such as the lungs, the mouth, any of our sinuses, right? Our ears, our nails, our eyes, anything that's exposed to the outside world, right, is going to be affected. And there have been studies by looking at individuals, right, at certain disease states. So we have associations with several different illnesses. So things like irritable bowel disease or Crohn's disease, there's information to suggest rheumatoid arthritis, type 2 diabetes, asthma and allergies, and even things as, as diverse as chronic fatigue syndrome. Right? There are links, there are genetic sort of studies that have been done that can link changes in our microbiota to these different disease states. Right? So all these things are going to have effects on our bodies themselves. So if we look at certain sort of bacteria so far, 
right? We have probiotics and commensals, and we also have pathogenic microbes that can overpopulate at any one point in time. We talked a little bit about parasites, we talked a little bit about yeast, but in terms of different virus, right, that can be considered to be pathogens or, right, bacteria or viruses themselves. Or, on the other hand, right, we have sort of probiotic ones, right, lactobacillus, bifo, bif, the bifobacteria, those are the two ones that you can find in certain types of yogurts, right? and those are the ones that people are trying to promote the population of the gut itself. So we have a lot of information, or a lot of information is now coming forward about how all these different bacteria in these different phyla and these individual species are going to have effects on disease states. So some of these bacteria are there helping us, and some of these bacteria are there that are not going to be able to help us. So if we get into right, the immune system itself, if we talk about immunity and defense, right, in general, we can look at right, sort of the major talking points to these different bacterial phyla or species that are inside our gut at any one point in time. So they're going to be involved with neutralization of bacterial toxins. Our mucosal barriers are going to protect against infectious microbes. So certain microbes that are pathogenic or infectious aren't going to be allowed to come into contact. Right, with certain areas inside of our intestines, well, we'll talk about intestines since we're talking about the gut, some of the bacteria are going to be able to come in contact and communicate with the immune system. Right, bacterial surface molecules are going to affect the immune system functioning and development. Some of these bacterial molecules, either on the surface or ones that are going to be secreted, are going to be able to try to defeat the immune system. Some of those other molecules are going to be there to try to ramp up the immune system and defeat some of the non, right, non, uh, no, some of the pathogenic bacteria. So some of these non-pathogenic bacteria are going to try to stimulate the immune system. Right? So they're going, to, they're going to basically turn on their bacterial comrades. Their, their, their relations and allow the immune system to destroy them while they themselves are not destroyed, right? That's where the, right, where the, the, the symbiosis comes from. Several species of bacteria, right, are going to be able to control or kill other pathogens, like other bacteria or, right, certain fungi. So we have this, this unbelievable intricate dance that's taking place inside of our gut between bacteria that we want to keep in our gut because they're beneficial to our gut in terms of nutrition and other bacteria that we want to try to destroy in our gut because they're going to be non-beneficial, right? Because they're going to be able to cause infections and those are the ones that we want to try to get rid of themselves. So, what do we know about how these microbes are going to be able to interact with the immune system? How these microbes are getting along inside of our gut? Well, what we know is that there are a bunch of different mechanisms by which signals from the luminal microbiota are transmitted to the immune system, into the GALT. Remember we talked about the GALT, the gut-associated lymphoid tissue. 
So remember the luminal side is the side of the intestine that is the tube itself. It's the tube where the, our food digestion is going to be able to take place, right? Where all this information is going to come to the forefront so that our immune system is going to be able to communicate with bacteria inside of our gut. And basically, this is going to take place by a specialized cell that's inside of our intestine or inside of our gut. It's called the M cell. So you remember, right, we sort of got to set our, our way back machine to remember when we were talking about the malt and the galt and we were talking about Peyer's patches. Peyer's patches were areas along the intestine itself where B cells and other immune cells, and other immune cells were going to congregate right, inside. And this congregation is taking place near the M cell. So the M cell has been identified histologically. It's also called the microfold cell. And it's in intimate contact with the Peyer's patches. So here's our blood system, and we have lymphocytes coming out. Remember when we talked about the ability of the lymphocytes to be able to travel around and through? Right? This is another place where this lymphocyte recirculation is going to, talk, is going to take place inside the gut. Right? We have lymph vessels. We have other sort of these secondary immune organs that are, that are in the same place in certain areas, lining along of our intestines themselves. So these M cells are a little bit different. They're in the Peyer's patches. And they have the unique ability to take up antigens and transport them across the cells themselves, right, by the process that's called transcytosis. We've talked about transcytosis before. Remember when we talked about the IgA molecule interacting with, right, the receptor on the surface and making its way across, right, when we had dimeric IgA and we're going to turn into secretory IgA. We talked about the ability of the IgA to move across. The same thing is going to take place. And that's what's going on inside these M cells. So these M cells can take antigen, transport it across the, the cell itself. Remember, we're not going to open up these gap vessels at all because we got all sorts of nasty chemicals inside of our intestine, right? We got all sorts of nasty, nasty bacteria in there. So it's this M cell that's going to be able to do all of this transport across so that we can come into contact. So here we see on the other side of this M cell, right, there's probably a bunch of, of more cells in the pyre patch down here. But really, it's this M cell that's going to allow this information from the luminal side of the intestine to make its way across to come into contact with the immune system itself. So the M cell can take antigens, can take right, uh, so, sort of pathogens or bacteria or antigens from those and bring them across so it's going to come into contact with the cells themselves. So the other thing about the M cells, where these M cells are sort of lining along here, is you can see in this picture, they really don't have any villi. And it's these villi, or right, these cilia on the surface that are involved with absorption. So this is a histological sort of difference between the M cells and the rest of the epithelial cells that are lining the intestine itself. So we have a lot of information. People are really starting to look, again, at the anatomy of 
the intestine or all of our sort of uh, lining cells. So you could imagine that probably places inside the, the lung itself, here we're looking at the intestine, but inside the lung we could probably see a similar sort of thing that's going to be able to take place as more people start to investigate right, the anatomy of the lung. We're probably going to see cells and, and sort of uh, mechanisms that are going to be very similar to what's taking place right here. So we have all this information that's taking place so that we can see these things as they're being able to take uh, forth inside the intestine itself. We also have right, these interdigitating dendritic cells that extend processes into the lumen so the dendritic cells can come into contact. Remember the dendritic cells were the professional antigen-preventing cells. So we have these professional antigen-presenting cells. So there's a picture of them. Oh, we don't have so much of a picture. All right, I have a picture. I have a different picture where we can show. But the dendritic cells themselves can put their processes out into the luminal side of the intestine as well so that they can take and they can sort of interact with pathogens out here and then take that information back down to the cells inside the pyrus patch or inside the lymph vessels themselves. Right? So we have all this intricate communication that's taking place. And we can get activation of innate immune receptors on epithelial cells themselves. So we have all this way in which right, these signals are going to make their way across the barrier that is Right? That is the intestine itself. So it's been known for some time right, that germ-free animals possess a very undeveloped immune system. If we take an animal and we raise it in germ-free conditions, right, and we're not going to allow its gut to become infected, right? infected here is a good word, we're not going to allow that gut to become infected, right? and these experiments, right, are notobiotic experiments, Basically, they're going to be germ-free from birth. So if we do that, right, we can sort of see, right, sort of see here in this picture, the difference between uh, prenatal and postnatal. So we can see here in the prenatal sort of cutaway of the intestine itself that we don't have any microbes, we don't have any sort of information that is that is being communicated to the immune system itself. So if we raise animals just this way and keep them in a prenatal stage, their immune systems aren't developing as efficiently or as effectively as animals that have been, again, infected with bacteria and allowing these sort of, of uh, interactions to take place. So there are other cells, right? There's all sorts of cells that we can identify inside the, the lining of the, the, the intestine itself. So we have goblet cells, and these goblet cells, right? We have a lot of goblet cells in here. The goblet cells are the cells that are going to secrete mucus, right? So again, your intestine is just sort of full of mucus, and the mucus is there to act as a lubricant. It's, we don't just have saline inside of our inside of our intestine, right? We need to be able to take the food particles, we need to be able to take our waste products, and they're going to be able to pass through the intestine rather smoothly, 
right? And it's this mucus that is involved with keeping our flow going inside, right? So that's one of the major cells. The goblet cell is a major cell inside the intestine. We have these panis cells inside the intestine. A panis cell is another uh, cell that's involved with defense. The panis cell has antimicrobial peptides that it can release, and it does release into the intestine itself to try to control populations of bacteria at any one point in time. Right, so they can release all sorts of different things. And then we have a whole bunch of different lymphocytes, right? Interepithelial lymphocytes, right? That people are just in the process of trying to identify and starting to characterize, right? As specialized lymphocytes, that's all they do is live inside these mucosal areas, and especially inside the intestine. And it's the interaction with these particular lymphocytes, and they're probably right, all related to T helper cells, and we'll talk about a major category of those lymphocytes in a second. So most of right, this interaction that's going to be able to take place is going to be involved with these very specialized T cells that live inside right, these areas of the malt and the gold. So induction of these commensal bacteria are important for Right, stimulating T helper cell numbers. We can see these interactions taking place as we start to colonize. So if we keep these animals right, germ-free, and then we are going to be able to populate the gut with any individual bacteria that we're interested in. Right? That's how we're going to do this experiment. We're going to feed them a certain species, and we're going to see how their immune system is affected. Right? We're going to not allow a different type of a bacteria to be present. We're going to see what's happening to their immune system itself. Right? So these bacteria are important for induction and the ability of secretory IgA to be present inside the lining of the intestine at any one point in time. Right? Other experiments have pointed to that sort of thing uh, or that ability to take place. The development of these gut-associated lymphoid tissues themselves and how the T cells and the B cells and the Peyer's patches are going to be able to come together and start to interact inside the lining of the gut is important, right? It seems that bacteria are involved with these processes, these processes as well. Right? So we have all this information that's taking place that is allowing right, this signaling to come into effect and to take place. So we can see, right, if we're looking at the interaction of the bacteria with the immune system, right, the bacteria themselves are going to be able to direct the formation and the, and the direction of the immune system by the bacteria coming into contact directly with the immune system and by receptors on the cell surface of the bacteria, by indirect ways in which signals that we really have no idea about and certain proteins that have been starting to be characterized and how these signals are going to interact with the immune system and drive the development of certain subsets of T helper cells at any one point in time. And then similarly, we have the ability of these same sort of subtypes of T helper cells and other cells like dendritic cells to be able to release cytokines and release other sort of factors that are going to come into contact with and stimulate either the proliferation or the inhibition of certain bacterial species inside the gut itself. So we have all this interaction that is taking place 
Right? And we were only on the tip of the iceberg started to come to do at this. This all happened from the ability of our massive sequencing to be able to see what is taking place. So, a lot of studies have found that there's a certain cell inside the gut. And this cell is going to come into contact with either commensal bacteria, right, and they're going to be able to stimulate these Th17 cells, right, from differentiation inside the lamina propria. And again, the lamina propria is just, right, this area, right, underneath the cells of the, of the intestine itself as we're getting into body tissues itself, right. So this interaction right in here, right, from these bacteria are going to lead to the development of, whoops, Th17 cells. So, we talked about these different subsets. Remember, we talked about Th1, Th2, Th9. We sort of mentioned Th17 cells. Well, now it's time to give Th17 cells their proper due. Right? Th17 cells, or is this distinct subset of T helper cells? Remember, this was one of the, we talked about Th1s, Th2s, and we went right from Th2 to Th9. And then we were trying to figure out why, would, why didn't they call them Th3 or 4 or 5 or 6, and it was Th9 because they release interleukin 9. Well, these are Th17s. And these were first uh, sort of described because they can release pro-inflammatory cytokines IL-17 and IL-22. So IL-17 was the first cytokine or the major cytokine that identified this subgroup of T helper cells, so that's why they're called Th17 cells. And basically, Th17 cells can mediate and recruit neutrophils and macrophages into the tissue spaces. Okay. And they've been shown to participate in inflammatory responses. They have critical function in defense against bacteria and fungi, particularly those right, that are encountered at mucosal surfaces. So this is the battle line you know, sort of frontline cell that's going to be involved with the immune system inside the gut. We don't know a lot about Th17 cells, but every day we're learning more and more about Th17 cells themselves. So again, here's our Th, right, our T helper cell precursor. If we were to look at what we've been looking at before, we're looking at T cells, right, CD8 positive cells, CD4 positive cells. So here's a CD4 positive cell precursor. And again, we've talked about the, the ability to stimulate the establishment of either Th1 subpopulations or Th2 subpopulations, right? We talked about Th1 being important for cell-mediated immunity. We talked about Th2 as being important to direct humoral-mediated immunity. So here we have, right, Th17 cells. So we have a bunch of different transcription factors that are going to be able to come online. Differentiation by stimulation with different cytokines like TGF-beta and interleukin-6. Right? Interleukin-23 is an expansion signal, and that's going to lead to the Th17 cells. Right? And they can release interleukin-17, and, and interleukin-17 is a family of cytokines. There are four or five different interleukin-17-likes uh, molecules themselves. So they're going to be able to release interleukin-17 and interleukin-22. So it's just another so subset of T, help, excuse me, T helper cells that people are starting to Right? starting to characterize. So differentiation of these Th17 cells seem to be correlated again with the presence of certain phyla 
inside the gut. So when these Th17 cells are there, right, they're being directed by certain signals that are coming from different bacteria themselves. So we have, we have these, these intricacies that we have no idea about. Right? So the big question is, why or what's the signal by the immune system or to the immune system or from the immune system that says, that's a good bacteria, leave it alone. That's a dangerous bacteria, kill it. We're not, even, we're not even going down that road yet. We're not even close to knowing why that's taking place, right? Why the immune system is not destroying certain bacteria, but they, it is destroying other bacteria. So, if we look now, we start to characterize Th17 cells themselves. So the absence of these Th17 cells, right, by, uh, by the bacteria could be accomplished by increased regulatory T cells in the lamina propria. So it looks like the bacteria are giving signals in this balancing act between these pro-inflammatory Th17 cells and right, those anti-inflammatory T regulatory cells. Remember we talked about T regulatory cells as being the cells that are involved with Right? Dampening the immune response or turning off the immune response. This suggests right, that the composition of the microbiota itself, the bacteria themselves, are regulating this Th17, T regulatory cell balance inside the gut. So it's as if now we are allowing the bacteria to dictate the immune response. Throughout the whole semester, we've been talking about, no, 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 we've got to go attack bacteria, we've got to turn on the immune system, we've got to... And now, there appear to be signals by which the bacteria can direct the immune response. And this is going to be able to influence, no question, intestinal immunity, things like tolerance, and, susceptible, and susceptibility to those inflammatory diseases that we, that we were looking at before. So we get down, and this cartoon sort of, sort of tries to sum up what's, what's taking place here, right? So we have this interplay, or apparently this interplay, right? So if we have the healthy microbiome and we have certain bacterial species, right? Like B. fragilis, and I forget what SFB, but it's, it's an unknown bacteria, right? So changes in the genome to be able to have regulatory cells and Th17 cells, right, together, pro-inflammatory and, and anti-inflammatory signals taking place. In terms of dysbiosis, if we have increased pro-inflammatory bacteria or decreased anti-inflammatory bacteria, whatever that means, right, different bacterial species that are going to give signals for pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, we're going to get out of balance, right? We can have more Th17 cells, more T-regulatory cells, right? Or any sort of imbalance between T-regulatory cells and Th17 cells appear to be the key by which, right, the immune system is interacting with and responding to these bacteria in our gut themselves. Studies have also identified, right, B. fragilis as capable of inducing Th1 systemic immunity. So now we have the ability not to sort of direct Th17 cell formation, but to direct Th1 cell formation, as well as, right, as a, this would be a pro-inflammatory, right, we're going to stimulate cellular immunity, 
and at certain different times, these bacteria can induce the production of IL-10. Remember, IL-10 is the major anti-inflammatory cytokine. And to be able to get that anti-inflammatory signal, these bacteria can, can stimulate the release and the, synthesis and, the, and, the, and, the, and the appearance of T regulatory cells. So we have all this interaction, all this information that is taking place at any one point in time. Do we have time? Yeah, you can write real. Yeah, no, all right. we don't have time. I mean, again, we could go into the biome depletion theory, but that's sort of, that's sort of something that's brand new. Suffice it to say, this is probably the number one area of immune research right now. We've talked about other areas that were hot like dendritic cells and mast cells. But this is probably the hottest area right now. And it all was brought about because we finally learned right, how to sequence a genome for under $1,000. It's still hard work, but it's getting easier and easier and easier. All right. Wow. Can't believe we made it through that. So. Everybody knows who's in 378. Everybody knows who's in 380, right? If you're in 378, you're going to write 378 on top of the page. If you're in 380, you're going to write 380 on the top of the page. The yellow part is the part that, yeah, it's just the lecture part, right? Everybody did everything for the, right, in the lab. You already did the, the lab component. Lecture itself is 380. If you're taking lecture plus lab, right, you'll take, oh, I'm going to have to go, John, can I have a few of those? We didn't get the front row. Oh, okay, sorry. So you need those, you got those, you got those. And you guys are going to need some of those. You're going to need some of those, and some of those, and some of those, and a bunch of those, a bunch of those, yeah. The what? Well, as of last night, the brand new one, that one is there. So yes, it absolutely is there. Right, and if you have any, any sort of written comments, that's what the green one is for. I have pencils. Anybody need pencils? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll put it across. You don't have to move, don't worry. Oh, sorry. And here's some of those. And here's some of those. And here's some of those. Uh, what do you need? Yellow sheets. What? Oh, they're, oh, they're coming. Scantrons and a pencil. Ugh. Pencils. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you. Alright, so pencils, scantrons, yellows or greens? Anybody? Bueller. Bueller. Okay. Alright, when you're done, if you can just put them down here. John is here to make sure that I don't intimidate you and tell you to put down nice things. So, that's right. We'll bring them back and track you down. So, test on Monday. Sorry, no, final on Monday. Oh, I'm still recording. 